So welcome everyone to our commemorative rally. Welcome to everyone here in the room in London, but also welcome to everyone watching on the stream internationally. We've got hundreds of comrades from all over the world streaming in to take part in this event. So it was on this day 100 years ago that Vladimir Lenin, the great Marxist revolutionary and leader of the Russian Revolution died. And ever since then, for 100 years, there has been a sustained campaign to slander him and distort his ideas. The ruling class attack Lenin precisely because he led the workers to power. They cannot tolerate an example such as him to remain in the imagination of the working class as an untouched figure. So we are launching our own campaign as the international Marxist tendency. Lenin lives. And Lenin lives precisely because his ideas are so applicable to the world that we live in today. And they are in this room and they are in this book that we are going to launch and in our organization across the whole world. In fact, I saw an article just this morning um, from the Daily Mail, so you'll have to forgive me for quoting this, but it's an, it's, a, it's an example of the exact kind of slander that Lenin is a victim of or 100 years later. It says, why does the gullible left still lionize Lenin as a benign intellectual and the acceptable face of communism when he ruthlessly murdered his opponents in their thousands, starved two million Russians to death and wrote the playbook for Stalin? So that's just one example of the type of material we can expect to see over the course of this year, again to denigrate Lenin and the example that he set for millions of people all over the world. So we are launching this campaign. And before I talk about the book, I just wanna give a few examples of how we as an organization all over the world are going to celebrate Lenin this year, his life and his ideas. First and foremost, to counteract the lies and the slanders of the likes of the Daily Mail and the rest of the gutter bourgeois press, our own website, marxist.com, has planned a series of articles monthly looking into different aspects of Lenin's theoretical works and his life. This is going to be new material on things like his philosophical writings, on writings on women, and much more. These articles will also look into some of the most important texts that he has written, things like State and Revolution, but also texts that are less known, like One Step Forward and Two Steps Back. We're also going to try and culminate all of this material in a brand new website, which will be called Lenin.red. And this will collate all of the material in the form of reading guides, videos, lead-offs. This will be a resource for communists all over the world who want to study Lenin and be, be able to really grasp his ideas. There's going to be a whole section on this website dedicated to the myths about Lenin that are spread by the bourgeois and the lies. And there will be a form, in fact, that you can fill in for you to write to us about the worst myths that you have heard about Lenin, which we will then answer and correct the record. Now, the IMT has a theoretical magazine in defense of Marxism, which I have a copy of here. And of course, this month it has just been released as a special Lenin bumper issue. It's longer than the magazine normally is, and it's being translated into more languages than ever before, with special articles once again paying attention to his philosophical writings and other aspects of his ideas. 
The well-read publishing house is planning brand new collections on different aspects of his work, Lenin on the national question, his writings on war, and also, most importantly, of course, 1917, the year of the Russian Revolution. Now, all of this activity is going to culminate in a special conference this summer of revolutionary communists coming together from all over the world. And once again, this will be streamed for any communist in any place to engage with as we talk about the most important aspects of his work. Now, all of these ideas must be used in person. We want to meet other communists all over the world and train them up. And so many sections of the IMT have started to begin this work. In Canada, in February, they're having a big conference um, called the Montreal Winter School, and they're expecting 700 people to attend it. This will be the launch of the Lenin book in North America. In Pakistan today, the comrades are hosting screenings, documentaries of Lenin all over the country to get his ideas out there. And they are also planning a special festival to take place in February. In Italy, the comrades have already begun this work. They had a special meeting a while ago celebrating themed around Lenin and they had over 200 people in attendance. And they also have a meeting today in Bologna, I believe, and they are, they are watching this uh, conference as a, as a big group so we can say hi to them on the stream. In Sweden, the comrades have launched a fantastic campaign titled Do Like Lenin, um, where they're filming themselves, filming the activity of communists in practice. So recently that has involved, of course, intervening um, passionately in the Palestine protests to raise communist demands there. Um, let, oh, oh, and also this morning in Sweden, I believe they've had a walking tour, um, a radical walking tour, and they are also watching the stream as a watch party now. So we can also say hi to them. There's lots of different festivals basically all over the world in all the major places celebrating and defending Lenin and his legacy. And more of them will be coming up throughout the year. The Are You a Communist campaign, which has already had huge successes all over the world, is going to be renewed this year with Lenin's face um, as well as Marx's. So you're not going to miss the Leninists and the IMT in any major city where we are present. So the IMT is showing that Lenin is alive through our activity and through our publication of this book and the ideas that are contained within it. To arm ourselves with these ideas, we are launching this book everywhere we can. And we're pleased to say that we've already sold over 4,300 copies of the book, in fact. In this session now, we're going to hear from the co-authors of the book, and that is Alan Woods, the editor of Marxist.com, and Rob Sewell, the editor, well, the former editor of, of Socialist Appeal, the current editor now of The Communist, our upcoming publication in the form of a newspaper. And then we will finally hear from Ben Glinietsky, who's the, the National Secretary of the IMT in Britain. So to start us off today, I'd like to introduce Rob Sewell. Thank you. <laughs> Well, uh, comrades at Comrades Chair, this meeting obviously is a historic meeting. We're here not only to uh, commemorate the centenary of the death of, of Lenin, it also marks the beginning of the Lenin year, in which we intend to explain in detail, far and wide, the relevance of Lenin to today, 
more relevant now than ever before. I would say that um, I am quite uh, uh, admire the audacity of the organizers um, who think that um, I can cover the life and ideas of Lenin in 30 minutes. They've a uh, good try there, but uh, I think that's probably a bit too far for me to stretch. So I can perhaps nevertheless deal with uh, certain important aspects, I would say, um, in order perhaps to uh, whet your appetite. Uh, he has to buy a book on Lenin. Um, and the book itself, I think, if you find is quite uh, extensive in the, in the quotations from Lenin, mainly because the defense of Lenin, no one better to defend Lenin than Lenin himself, and to see the context in which he has been writing. And also we hope that this will stimulate, uh, yes, a further interest in reading for yourselves the writings of Lenin and to get a first-hand account. Of course, um, for us, Lenin stands as a, a colossal figure in the revolutionary movement. After all, he stands out not only as the, the founder of the Bolshevik party, probably the most revolutionary party in history, but also the leader of the October Revolution of 1917, which established a worker state for the first time. Uh, and his name itself, I was so, as was explained by Fiona, uh, is associated in effect with communism and with world revolution. And therefore, he is uh, of extreme importance to those who wish to change society. But obviously, from the point of view of the bourgeoisie, the point of view of the ruling classes, Lenin is an anathema because of his accomplishments, because of his ideas. For the ruling class, he represents an enormous danger despite the fact he's been dead for a hundred years. Why? It's because the ideas that he represents are a danger, not just to the capitalist, but the whole of the capitalist system, as it's entered into a deep crisis at the present time. As I said, his ideas are more relevant today than ever before, and the ruling class recognize that. And that's why, as uh, Fiona also explained, there's been a, a calumny of, of lies, of slander against Lenin for more than a hundred years. They attempt to blacken his name, distort his ideas, turn everything in its opposite, make him very unattractive, unappealing, as if he's a link to, the, to Stalinism, totalitarianism, dictatorship, and so on and so forth. Whereas we have to understand, and we have to explain the truth about Lenin. Of course, they are, they've got a, how could you call it? There's a school of uh, bourgeois historians who specialize in the slander of Lenin. And they use their positions, the, the Fidgeses the, and the Robert Services and the, and, the, and the Pipes, all these individuals who work full time in order to denigrate the ideas of Lenin, distort, to, to, to twist and, and distort these ideas, hopefully to make them unattractive 
Although the, I would say they're not a loser on that score. Lenin's ideas are becoming more attractive, particularly to the younger generation. You know, the, there was a, an opinion poll conducted by YouGov not so long ago, how you would look at uh, Lenin, how you appreciate him. For the older generation, you know, over 65, those who liked Lenin was 4%. The millennial generation, however, when they were asked, 40% admired the work of Lenin. If they took the younger generation, in my opinion, what did the, G, the, the Gen Z gen generation, I'm sure that would be far higher. He's a very attractive figure for those who wish to change the world. But of course, not only did the, did the bourgeoisie distort his ideas, we have to overcome the distortions of Stalinism as well. They also denigrate Lenin for their own purposes, to cover up their crimes and their twists and their turns. Even right up to the present day, I read uh, the articles put out yesterday by the, the Morning Star, the so-called communist paper. And I must say, all those articles uh, are, uh, well, they just de it's a denigration of the ideas of Lenin. When you read them, you think that Lenin was a, a Russian nationalist. They mention all sorts of things, hodgepodge of ideas, some correct, some incorrect, all sorts. And they leave out one little detail, one small detail. The World Revolution. As if that was not the, the, the central point of Lenin himself. In fact, uh, you had, I think her name was Professor uh, Mary Davis, who's on the executive of the British Communist Party, who said that, uh, well, Lenin came back in 1917, armed with the April thesis to create a socialist state, full stop. Uh, of course, uh, Lenin was not a nationalist, but an internationalist. In fact, when he came back from exile and was at the Finland station in April 1917, you had the leaders of the, the Soviet came to, to meet him, the social revolutionaries and the Mensheviks, and he turned his back on them and turned to the workers, the soldiers, the sailors who had come to greet him. He said, I welcome you in the name of the vanguard of the world revolution. That was his message. And he concluded, I have the speech here, long live the worldwide socialist revolution. That is the essence of Lenin. That is the essence of Leninism, this internationalism. Why? If there was a country in the world in 1917 that you could choose, where you would have a, a proletarian revolution, I'll tell you one thing, you would never pick Russia. Because of the backwardness, the fact the working class was, the industrial working class was three million strong. The mass of the peasants, 150 million peasants, is extremely backward. But of course, capitalism broke at its weakest link. And what the Bolsheviks did, what Lenin did, was to carry out their revolutionary duty to carry through the revolution, not as simply a Russian revolution, but as the beginning 
of the world revolution. That was the whole essence of it. You could never build socialism in a backward country on the basis of semi-feudal conditions. On the contrary, the material basis for a new society, for communism, for socialism, only exists on a world scale created by capitalism. That's an ABC for Marxists. But of course, uh, Stalinism distorted all that with the idea of socialism in one country. And the adoption of that theory that uh, Trot and Trotsky explained that later on. You adopt that theory and you'll see the national and reformist degeneration of the communist international and the communist parties. Exactly what has happened. Lenin was an internationalist. He understood, in fact, they held out uh, in this besieged fortress and he was prepared to, to sacrifice the Russian Revolution for a victory of the revolution in Germany. Why? Because Germany was at the center of Europe and it would spread the revolution worldwide. Internationalism was the core of Lenin and of Leninism. And we stand not on that internationalism, not on the national uh, the national uh, ideas of, of building separate countries of socialism. What an abomination of an idea. But we have to understand, of course, that Lenin, this great man, yes, who stands out. In fact, he came to Marxism with a struggle, by the way. And once he understood Marxism, he embraced it fully and understood that these ideas had to be not just learnt or read about, they had to be studied, they had to be conquered. And I would say that for young comrades who are coming to these ideas. Conquer them for yourselves. Learn, understand this, these rich ideas, which are the ideas of Marxism, and they were scientific socialism. But Lenin didn't see them as uh, a dogma. On the contrary, they were seen as a guide to action. That was the whole point. But Lenin realized that the building of a revolutionary movement, of a party, could only be based upon revolutionary theory, the bedrock of a party. And that was, the, if you're going to build a Marxist party, it must be built on the bedrock of Marxism, which is the science of understanding of revolution itself. And that's why he explained as early as 1902 that the uh, revolutionary movement can only be based on uh, can only be a, based on, on revolutionary ideas on revolutionary theory, and that was the principle on which he tried to build the Bolshevik Party and then of the Communist International. However, you could say that he also showed enormous flexibility in relation to this. Even in a backward country like Russia, he understood the importance of the working class as the only revolutionary class in society. And that was the fundamental difference, by the way, later on in the split between Mensheviks and Bolsheviks, you know, which was a, a, a split in 1903 over an organization, over the composition of the editorial board. But in essence, deep down, they were deeper, more political, not seen at that time, which would emerge later, political differences. 
And that was in relation to who would lead the Russian Revolution, where the Mensheviks took the view as it was a bourgeois revolution, then the bourgeoisie should lead it, and the workers should be subordinate. Whereas Lenin's position was on the contrary, the bourgeoisie will play a counter-revolutionary role, and that the only revolutionary class in Russia was the, was the working class. And they would be the vanguard in the overthrow of Tsarism. Trotsky actually went even further and said that, uh, yes, the working class will lead it. It can come to power, first of all, in a socialist revolution, which actually occurred in 1917. He had a bit more of a, of a clearer vision, if you like, at that particular time. But Lenin understood the importance of building the Revolutionary Party, perhaps more than any other Marxist at that time. And, but on the other hand, did, did it by understanding theory, but flexibility and understanding how to connect with the working class. And therefore you see a change from uh, Lenin who argued in 1903 for a more, a very firm, a solid organization uh, a, a tight membership to when it came to the revolution in 1905 of open up the ranks, open up the party, win over the youth, be audacious. In other words, he understood the need to connect when it was important to connect. He also understood the, the value of, of the experience of the working class. Soviets, which had never been heard of before, workers' councils being created by the Russian workers. And Lenin explained they could be the embryo of, of, of workers' power, a new workers' government. He saw in the movement, the real movement of the working class. Trotsky also agreed with that I idea. But in uh, 1905, the revolution lasted practically a year. The Bolsheviks grew under those circumstances. However, the defeat of the revolution at the end of 1905 ushered in a period of complete reaction in Russia. I mean, unbelievable reaction, where people suffered, they committed suicide, they were completely in a blind alley. It was the, the, the collapse of the party in many respects. And Lenin had to hold the line, and that was one of his courageous features of a determination, of a courage to hold the line, and also to maintain the structure of the party, or the ideological structure of the party. In other words, not to be buffeted around by events, because at that time you had various tendencies emerging, ultra-left tendencies uh, and also opportunist tendencies, which he fought against and tried to keep the Bolsheviks on the straight and narrow. And that required, I guess, an ideological, um, I think, uh, yeah, struggle within the party against uh, uh, tendencies which had taken it in various directions and hoping that on the basis of holding things together, holding the cadre together on the basis of a change in the circumstances, they could take advantage of the situation, which came in 1912, where you had the, 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 the massacre of the uh, workers in the, the Lena Goldfields, which opened up and spread enormous resentment everywhere, a revolutionary movement everywhere. And Lenin at that time took the audacious view that the Bolsheviks, should establish themselves after attempts, many attempts to fuse with the Mensheviks over these years. An impossibility. Why? Because the Mensheviks represented reformism and the Bolsheviks represented revolution. 
at a certain time, you'd, it needed to part company. And that happened in, in 1912 with the formation of the Bolshevik Party. 21 delegates, by the way, attended that founding conference where they also agreed to establish a daily paper of Pravda, which, uh, because of the audacity of Lenin and the ability of the, of the party, resulted in a, a rapid growth of, the, of Bolshevism in these years. Four-fifths of the reading working class in Russia supported the Bolsheviks. By 1914, barricades had been put up in uh, uh, Moscow. It was the beginnings of another 1905 revolution. But that was cut across by the First World War, which brought things to a head, clarified issues, as, as is all, war does clarify things. And, after, and, and because of that, you had the betrayal, the open betrayal of the leaders of the social democracy who had succumbed to opportunism, who then succumbed to, to, to chauvinism, of nationalism. And we saw the disintegration of the international. In the words of Rosa Luxemburg, it was reduced to a stinking corpse. But Lenin had the audacity as well to, to strike out for the future, even in his dark days, the need for a third international, not to reform the old international, a new international based on revolutionary socialism, based on the ideas of genuine Marxism. And in those years of, of war, where which is a dark years, if you like, where workers were killing each other. Lenin held together the Kedah, trained it up in the fundamental ideas of internationalism, above all else, produced uh, documents and books like, like imperialism and so on, and was preparing for a break in the situation. War was preparing revolution at a certain point. And that broke out, as we know, in February in Russia in 1918. 1917, rather. And that uh, was a culmination, a culminating point. Because, yes, Lenin changed his ideas, abandoned the old idea that we're looking for a bourgeois revolution. Now it's time to fight for a socialist revolution. Exactly the same conclusions that Trotsky had come to earlier. Trotsky also, who didn't understand fully the clarity of the need for the party, also learned the lessons in these years. And you have a coming together of Lenin and Trotsky joining the party and, and the whole prospect then of world revolution. Russia was the beginning of the world revolution. Of course, we haven't got time to go into all these aspects clearly, but it showed the, the flexibility, the courage, the determination, and the clarity, if you like, and honesty. If you read Lenin's writings, what, he strikes, what strikes you is the honesty of the man. He doesn't brush things under the carpet. He brings it out. Why? to learn about it, to draw the lessons from it, despite whatever other difficulties there are. Because unless you st stare, stare reality in the face, how can you change it? And that was always Lenin's method as well. And in taking power, they did as um, Rosa Luxemburg said, you know, they, they upheld the, the honor of the international. They dared to do it. And that without any illusions, that they could build socialism in Russia, although they carried through a lot of reforms and intentions and raised consciousness and so on in Russia. And uh, they built a, a planned economy later, later on. Nevertheless, the whole idea was just to hold on until revolution occurred in the West, because that was the savior 
of the Russian Revolution. That was the savior of, of, the, of the, the efforts of the Russian workers themselves. That's why they built the Communist International in 1919. It's inter the, the Morning Star said, yeah, they built that to, uh, to help the colonial world. I mean, yes, but the whole idea was to build an international for world revolution, a school of communism, where communist parties should be formed now, a new banner, not cast off the, the, the dirty linen of the so-called socialist movement, of the traitors and so on, and go back to the ideas of Marx and, 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 and uh, Engels and the formation of a communist movement, which, uh, uh, which uh, lit the whole world up. Ten days that shook the world. Yes, it shook the entire world, the Russian Revolution. A backward country, but it resonated with millions and millions and millions of people who had, who had gone through the suffering of the First World War and the horrors that had uh, accrued out of it. And therefore it became a beacon to the workers of the world. But the problem was that um, events were moving. In Germany in 1918, the workers could have had power. They had power, but were betrayed by the Social Democrats. The communist movement ha didn't have time to build up the forces. And even when it built up the forces, they were young and inexperienced forces. They needed time to be educated and so on, which was obviously the task of Lenin, Trotsky, the communist international at that, uh, at that time. But we see that, uh, of course, um, the whole history of, of, of Bolshevism is so rich. I mean, Alan's book is, is a masterpiece, which also should be studied, because it is a, it's a, a textbook for today, not a history book. It's a textbook for now. And Lenin looked back in 1920 and reviewed the whole of, of Bolshevism. Why was Bolshevism so advanced? And he said the reason for that was the peculiarities in Russia of underground work, of legal work, of semi-legal work, all the different uh, facets that, that hadn't been faced in the West. The fact that the leadership had to go into exile and therefore open to greater ideas and experiences. All those things were a factor in the development of the Bolshevik party and also of Lenin. Lenin wasn't created Lenin, wasn't born Lenin. He made himself. He, he consciously developed himself for the role of what was needed as a leader of the Bolshevik party itself. And that's, we should look up to those particular uh, lessons that accrued in that particular way. Unfortunately, as I said, the revolutions abroad were betrayed by the leaders of the Social Democrats. As a consequence, you had an isolated revolution surrounded by imperialism, attacked by 21 foreign armies, a civil war, a devastation, if you like. And they were holding on with their fingertips. The best communists went to the front. They were killed. This was the, the tragedy of the situation, the lack of communist parties here elsewhere that could also lead a revolution. Because there were many revolutionary situations, including in Britain, in France, whole number of countries. But it was leadership, the party that was missing. That was the element, the negative experience of the German revolution, was they didn't have a Lenin, didn't have a Bolshevik party. They didn't have leaders who were capable of carrying this thing through to the end. And as a consequence, you have a degeneration within the revolution. Lenin thought that the revolution, if it didn't spread, would be doomed. It would be doomed, given the backwardness 
of the economy, the backwardness of Russia. It was a, the only lifeline they had was international revolution. That's where they, they saw it. And we saw the rise of the bureaucracy, those who could read the old officials coming back, or you know, the, the, the old czarist officials and so on, taking places and so on, in the state, in the apparatus. If you like the working class being, even as you say, even uh, atomized because of the terrible conditions that they were imposing at the present time, at that time. And yet, with this degeneration, Lenin's last fight is against bureaucracy. It's interesting, the Morning Star quotes uh, better for you, but better, but never quotes the real essence of the struggle against the bureaucratic degeneration of the revolution. Well, Lenin's last words were to remove Stalin as the general secretary. In other words, what they wanted to do is to, to fight the bureaucracy that was taking power out of the hands of the working class. Lenin managed to organize that fight in conjunction with Trotsky, his co-leader of the revolution. But unfortunately, by 1920, late 22, these illness and then the strokes of 1923 took him out of the battle. He couldn't finish the battle. And therefore, he had a, if you like, his legacy was then just twisted by Stalin and the Stalinists to justify their policies. Now, there was Menshevism in reality, the two-stage theories. The only person to defend the fundamental ideas of Lenin was Leon Trotsky and the left opposition, who were able to analyze Stalinism, the role of Stalinism, its counter-revolutionary nature, and defending the genuine ideas that we represent here today. Not the distortions, the real Lenin, the real Leninism the real Marxism, because that's what it really is. In other words, the, the real ideas that we hold, which are necessary for us to understand, to grasp, to lay the basis, yes, for building a party, as Lenin did, a Bolshevik party, on the principles of theory and understanding. But we have to have determination. We have to have courage. I remember, well, I remember reading a conversation between Lenin and Trotsky in 1919, where the counter-revolution was surrounding the whole, uh, the small area that they, they controlled. And he said, well, what, what happens if we lose Petrograd? And Lenin said, we'll, we'll retreat to Moscow. Said, what happens if we move, move, lose Moscow? We'll retreat to the Urals and beyond, he said. There, there's this, materials and we can rebuild, we'll retrain, we'll re-educate, we'll reconquer. In other words, show the, the, the determination, the courage that was necessary at that stage. We have to learn a bit about that. You know, we have to learn also not just the ideas, but this determination and courage to carry things through to the end, to have faith in the working class, faith in the ideas of Lenin, of Bolshevism, faith in ourselves, because the greatest test is to come in the next period of building these ideas. There's a massive transformation of consciousness coming. We must connect with it. We have to build it. We have to carry through what was begun by the, the heroes of the movement, the, the, the people that we stand on the shoulders of, of Marx, Engels, Lenin, Trotsky. And in that way, prepare the ground, yes, for the international proletarian revolution, the victory thereof. Thank you.
Well, that was an inspiring beginning. I'm, I hope you don't mind if I sit. I've got reasons for it in this uh, session. And the subject which I've been asked to speak on is the relevance of Lenin today. That's an interesting question. And some people might say, they will say, well, didn't Lenin die a hundred years ago? What possible relevance do these old ideas have for us? Yes, many have that opinion, including the leaders of the so-called communist parties, which Rob just mentioned. You see, I am conscious of the fact, I see this all the time, we live in an age where it's not fashionable to speak about old ideas. People want new ideas, don't they? New theories, new socialism, and so on. Socialism of the 21st century, somebody uh, tried to maintain. Well, see, the problem is that there's a slight, this is fashionable, yes, you know. People want new ideas, modern ideas, dare I say it, postmodern ideas. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. Now, the question is this. There's a slight misunderstanding here, I believe. You see, an idea is not necessarily good because it is new, nor is an idea necessarily bad because it is old. Let's, get, let's think of an example, any example. I'll give you an example now. The example of an object, an everyday object, which is called the wheel. I think you've all heard of the wheel, haven't you? I believe you have, okay. So you probably use some of those to get here today. Now the wheel, if you didn't know it, is a very, very old idea. It's a very old, one of the oldest inventions known to the human race, very old, thousands of years old. And yet, for thousands of years, believe it or not, the wheel has accomplished its purpose quite effectively, carrying us, you and I, from A to B. No complaints. Now, what would you say to some bright spark, there must be one, that would come up and say, hey, hang on a sec, the wheel, that's old-fashioned, that's old hat. Let's invent a new wheel, a modern wheel, a postmodern wheel. <laughs> yes, no, I'm sure of it, you can be sure. Now, I ask myself the following question. What possible shape would this new postmodern wheel have? Would it be square, triangular? <laughs> oblong, I don't know. What I, what I do know, and I do know this fairly clearly, this so-called new we will not carry us one single millimeter along the road which we've chosen to, to travel. And when we refer to modern ideas, well, the most modern document which I know was written by two young Germans in the year 1847, Marx and Engels. It's called the Communist Manifesto. It's an astonishing fact. Think about it. I'll challenge you. Some of you are students. You go to a library, any library, tomorrow morning at nine o'clock and look at any bourgeois book on economics, philosophy, history, so on, written at that time. And I'll tell you in advance, that book will merely be of a, a merely historical interest. But you read the Communist Manifesto. It is as fresh and relevant today than the moment in which it was written. I'll go further. It's more relevant, more fresher, 
and more applicable to the conditions today than the conditions that, that existed in 1847 and 48. And therefore, what's our conclusion? Well, it's a very simple thing, you know. We do not need comrades and friends. We do simply do not need to reinvent the wheel. It's, it serves its purpose. And the same thing goes for all the fundamental ideas of Marxism. Now, you might say to me, well, surely Marxism must evolve, must develop, like, like any living thing. I agree, so it must. These ideas can be modified, they can be altered, they can be changed. If necessary, they can, they can be scrapped altogether. But you know, I'll tell you something, free of charge. All the study which I've made, and I've made, I've made this my lifelong task, as Rob has, and some other comments have. I'll tell you something about Marxism. What is absolutely surprising is how few changes have to be made, even to the Communist Manifesto, very few. And they're not of a fund none of them are of a fundamental character. Here we see the colossal superiority of Marxism, of the method of Marxism to which Rob referred. And in this colossal treasure house of ideas, brilliant ideas, wonderful ideas, profound ideas, beautiful ideas, okay? which is the, the sum total of Marxist theory, a very prominent place, of course, is occupied precisely by the enormous contribution made by, by Lenin. Now, of course, the bourgeoisie, is, as, as Rob correctly said, is anxious to, to bury Lenin. They've been trying for a long time to bury Lenin under a pile of dead dogs, as uh, Thomas Carlyle referred to the attempt to bury Oliver Cromwell and bury the English Revolution under the heap of dead dogs, lies, slanders, distortions, as, 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 as much as you like. They tried to bury him, but they failed. They failed. They particularly thought that they'd succeeded in settling accounts with communism, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, which was what, 30 years ago, 25, I can't remember. Anyway, that was a colossal historical event. It was an earth-changing, historical-changing event. It was undoubtedly a dramatic event. Okay, and they concluded from that, this, this is the end of it. Francis Fukuyama, you might have heard of him, actually said, it's, it's not just the end of, uh, of communism and socialism, it's the end of history, he said. Yes, but you see, history has got a, a way of taking revenge on people like Francis Fukuyama. History did not cease with the fall of the Soviet Union. The march of history continues, and now, of course, the wheel, this colossal wheel of history has changed. It, of course, I recall there was a conversation. I wasn't around at the time. I was born about four years later than that. But when, when France collapsed in 1940, there was a conversation between a German officer, a haughty, arrogant German officer, occupying Paris. To, he's speaking to a, French, a defeated French officer, the defeated French army, obviously very dejected, pessimistic, and so on. And he was boasting, bragging about this. He said, well... We won. The answer to the French officer was very interesting. He said, yes, he said, the wheel of history has turned. It will turn again. And it did. And it did. And this is precisely the, the lesson of the whole of history. There can be all kinds of changes. But the general processes are, are perfectly clear. And what you have now, this is interesting. The wheel has turned to the extent that he was saying, Communism is finished and capitalism has got all the answers. The free market economy. You heard of that, of course. Well, now you see 
the so-called free market economy in all of its glory. Terrible, terrible crisis, the deepest crisis in the history of, of capitalism, I would say. And therefore, what I would say is that Ted Grant actually predicted this at the time. He said the collapse of the Soviet Union was a colossal historical drama, yes. But he said, in retrospect, and now we're looking at it in retrospect, in retrospect, it will be seen as only the prelude, okay, to a far greater historical drama, which is the collapse of capitalism. Ted said that, and he's been proven to be correct. That's precisely what's there. And therefore, all of a sudden, as Rob has, uh, has, has pointed out to me, all of a sudden, they suddenly discovered Lenin and Marx. Bourgeois writers, not all of them, most of them still attack, of course, but some of them are already beginning to draw some very unpleasant parallels, very accurate parallels, very uncomfortable for them between the present crisis of capitalism and Russia in 1917. Yes, oh yes. Some of these people are not fools. Most of them are complete fools. I mean, look at that fool in the White House, for goodness sake. The man is a... To say he was a circus clown would be to a discredit of the, the profession of clownery. <laughs> Good heavens above. Anyway, leave that to one side. But some of them have got a glimmer of, uh, of understanding and they've realized suddenly the danger posed now by the re-emergence of communism, which is taking place under as, uh, as I speak. And this, of course, involves also the, the, the revival of, uh, of Lenin. Of course, the trick which they had, they argued that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the collapse of communism, the collapse of socialism. It was no such thing. What collapsed, let's be clear about this, what collapsed in the, at that time, in 1989 or 90, was not socialism in any sense that would be understood by Marx, Engels, or Lenin. What collapsed was a bureaucratic and totalitarian caricature of, of socialism called Stalinism. That certainly collapsed. And it was inevitable that it would collapse, and it did collapse. That's, that's a fact. But you see, the whole rotten edifice of the attacks against Lenin, as Rob pointed out, was to draw a false parallel, absolutely false, lying parallel between Leninism and Stalinism. Leninism and Stalinism, let's be clear, Leninism are not just different, not just different in kind, they are mutually contradictory and mutually exclusive. There's a river of blood which separates Leninism from Stalinism, and that must be understood. And now, of course, there's the beginnings of a backlash against the capitalist system and all of its works. There's some quotes from the book. There's this chap, that was quite interesting. There was, a, a, believe it or not, an Icelandic, a bankrupt Icelandic businessman called, I think, Ornsfavarsson or something like that, was demonstrating outside the parliament in Reykjavik in 2008. And he was quoted as saying an interesting thing. He said the following. For, this is a businessman, okay, a, big, a bankrupt businessman, that's true. For the first time in my life, I have sympathy with the Bolsheviks, and with the French revolutionaries who set up the guillotine. <laughs> For the bankers, I assume. And we say, amen to that. You know, but the, the, these, these ideas, in other words, even, even among the ruling class, some people are beginning to get the message that these ideas are, are va valid and they are dangerous.
Now, to refer to, to refer to the relevance of Lenin, well, Rob dealt with that very adequately. I thought they did very well in his opening remarks. You see, Lenin, the man is dead, of course, but nevertheless, he left behind a colossal legacy, a very valuable legacy in his writings, which in the English edition amounts to about 45 volumes, I think. In Russian, it, it, it's more than that. It's a big, thick volume. I think it's about 55 volumes, yes. And even that's not, not quite complete, you can be sure. But nevertheless, this is a colossal heritage, which, of course, is a very important thing which we have to, uh, to defend. Now, when you deal with Lenin's contribution, what is, what is Lenin's great contribution? Well, it's often said it was the creation of the Bolshevik Party. Well, that's correct. That's correct. And the Russian Revolution, that's also correct. Without Lenin, these, these events would not have taken place. And yet, you see, it's correct, but it's a, from that assertion, taken in isolation, you can draw erroneous conclusions, one-sided conclusions, you see. And that is that, is that uh, yes, Marx, Karl Marx was a brilliant thinker, it is true, but it, Lenin was the practical revolutionary who carried out the revolution and built the Bolshevik Party, and that is false. Radically false. It is an insult to the memory of Lenin to describe it in any sense as a practical. As a, that was Stalin's role, actually. No, no. Lenin was also a great theoretician, as much as Marx and Engels, who devoted his life, as Rob very well explained, he devoted his entire life, as Rob said, to a thorough, profound study of all the basic works of, of, of Marx and Engels, and beyond that, Hegel, classical writers, I'll come to that a bit uh, uh, later on. But his whole life, actually, was one long learning curve Colossal learning curve, starting with his earliest youth, passed through some terrible experiences with the execution of his brother, the executed as a terrorist and so on, the perse persecution of his family. But in addition to that, he learned. There was the early struggles, which I referred to, the struggle against the economists, so-called. Some of the sects today remind me very strikingly of the, of the economists. I won't mention any names for fear of offending somebody's feelings, you know, but nevertheless. The struggle against Bernstein and the revisionists. And by the way, here's an interesting idea. Lenin's ideas, but Lenin made a very great contribution to Marxism through his works. There's no question about it. Some of them are quite original and so on. But it would be wrong to try to refer to Leninism as something that is separate and apart from Marxism. That is false. That was the idea of the Stalinists. They, they put forward this idea for their own purposes. No, no, no. Lenin, if, by the way, the, the, the word Leninism was never used in Lenin's lifetime. And if it had been used, he would have been furious. I'm certain of it. He would have been horrified. No, no. Lenin spent all his life, as you're referring to new ideas and all, it was the Kautskys and the Bernsteins that were fighting for new ideas, new versions of Marxism. No, 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 no. Lenin was all the time defending the old ideas of Marx and Engels against the revisionists. That was his, his point. And he, he maintained that position, Trotsky also, by the way, maintained that position until he died. So that's an important point to understand. But all these battles, these ideological battles against the economists, against the revisionists, against the Mensheviks, the experience of 1905, which Rob referred to, and after that terrible defeat, it was a terrible defeat. You know, many young comrades committed suicide because they thought it was the end. They thought there would be no future. Lenin devoted his time 
To what? Precisely the struggle for theory. It's not an accident. In 1908, he writes a philosophical book, an important philosophical book, called Materialism and Imperial Criticism. To combat the, the, the ideas of philosophical revisionism, which were creeping into the movement, it was absolutely imperative. By the way, we ourselves have conducted a similar struggle for the last uh, 25 years since, since this tendency broke away from another group which shall remain nameless for the sake of, uh, for the sake of, uh, of our eternal soul, shall we say, shall we say. No, no, it was, uh, this was Lenin's great, uh, great role, of course. Um, he was, of course, uh, a very cultured man, as all the leaders of the Bolshevik party were cultured men and women, you know, that made a, a careful study of theory and ideas, of course. He could speak foreign languages, as Rob says, as well of his uh, several exiles abroad. He could speak fluent German, tolerable French. I, I believe he could speak some English, but um, probably not so good because he wasn't so long in, in, in Britain. But that enabled him to read the works of Marx and Engels in the original in German, which he did. Not only that, the works of Hegel. Now that's interesting, to show how the passion which Lenin had for it. He had a passion for theory, a passion for these ideas. He had a thirst for ideas. Just imagine, now just imagine this. This is an answer to all the clowns, the idiots who don't understand the, the importance of theory, which is anathema to any genuine Marxist. During the First World War, imagine the, the terrible conditions of the war, mass massacre of workers in uniform, poison gas in the trenches, bayonets, guns, artillery, explosions. Amidst all this din of warfare, what was Lenin doing? He was in Switzerland, isolated from, the, from Russia, isolated from the working class completely, in touch with just a handful of people, as a matter of fact. In the silence of a Swiss library reading room, studying Hegel's logic. That's what he was doing. Now, here you see the, the complete falsity of pre preventing Le Lenin as the practical, and then, of course, you've got the theoreticians. Completely false. What was Lenin doing in, in a library under these circumstances? I'll tell you what he was doing. He was sharpening his weapons precisely for the October Revolution by studying these very profound works of the... He, he acquired an outstanding understanding of dialectics, which again, without that, I don't think he could have written a work like, uh, for example, uh, left-wing communism, for example, for instance, or state and revolution. This is the important. Yes, there are, the, the, Hegel, of course, was the original theories of, of Marx, and therefore that was full of brilliant insights. However, I have to, I have to warn you, it's not an easy read. In fact, Hegel, uh, Lenin complained on one occasion. He said. Reading Hegel's logic is the best way of getting a headache, he said, which is probably true, I suppose. But anyway, he, he studied these ideas, and that was precise, precisely how he was preparing himself for the role he played in 1917. That's he also, of course, was very interested in culture. I think our comments are not sufficiently interesting. I'll say that bluntly. That's why perhaps the, the, the style of, of writing of many comments is not really up to scratch, I have to say. Lenin read all of the classics. You can see that in his works, he's got constant references to Shakespeare, to Dickens, to Goethe, and also the, the Russian writers, Gogol, Tolstoy, something of Shedrin, 
Gansharov and, and Chernyshevsky, but she was very fond of Although I personally think he was a rather bad writer, but that's just my opinion. No, but like, he was okay. And all of them had the same culture, with one exception. The one that didn't have culture, had no interest in culture or literature or anything of that sort, who couldn't speak any foreign languages, was Stalin. He was the only one that had that, uh, that uh, position. He was proud of the fact. He was a complete uh, Philistine, which none of the great Marxists were. Marx, Engels, they all took a great interest, not just in philosophy, but in culture. Well, that just, I mentioned that as an aside. Except I have to say, Lenin was a bit conservative in his literary taste. <laughs> he didn't like Mayakovsky, the great futurist poet. But he was modified, he modified his views after the revolution when Lunacharsky, who was the, the first Soviet uh, commissar for culture, pointed out to him that Mayakovsky's poetry was actually very popular with the workers and the youth of Russia, and Lenin somewhat modified his views. That's a separate, that's a bit of an aside that I haven't got time to, to deal with, it's dealt with in the book. But you see, Lenin and Trotsky really stand out against all the other Bolshevik leaders precisely for their mastery of theory. Precisely that. Ted Grant once, you know, our founder and leader and teacher, unfortunately he's no longer with us, but Ted once he once said to me, he said, look, if you look at the leaders of the Bolshevik party, who, who, who were theoreticians, genuine theoreticians? And he'd answer, only Lenin and Trotsky, two men in the whole party. And then he paused for a while and he said, yeah, and possibly Bukharin. I don't agree with him. I think Bukharin was a very poor, a poor theoretician, but that's again, my opinion. And he also said something else on another occasion, remember he came. And he looked with an expression of perplexity on his, on his face. And he said, Alan, he said, I don't, know, I don't know why Lenin wrote so many books. He said, because nowadays nobody reads them. And if they do, they don't understand a single word. And that, my friends, is all too true. I guarantee it, you know. I mean, just look, for example, look at the uh, numerous sectarian grouplets the ultra-left groups which, which uh, mess around, piddle around, I say, on the, on, the, on, the, on the fringes of the labor movement and swagger and boast as if they were great, uh, as if they were Lenin and Trotsky and Marx combined. And they show their complete ignorance at every step. No understanding of theory whatsoever. That is why, look around you, Look around, don't, don't spend too much time, you waste, you waste your time. We got import, we got other fish to fry, you know. Really speaking, we don't care what these ladies and gentlemen think, say, or do. We don't care at all. They're not even a footnote to history. Nevertheless, I mention them as a horrible example of what happens when you don't understand theory, when you don't accept uh, the role of theory. They're all in crisis, splitting at this moment in history, splitting in pieces, deeply pessimistic and so on. Okay. Leave them alone. What's today? It's Sunday. You know what I'm going to do now, don't you? You know what I'm going to do now, don't you? I'm going to quote one of my favorite books, the Bible. And the Bible says, like unto, this is talking about the sects now, like unto the foolish man who builded his house upon the sand. 
and the wind came and it blew upon the house and the rain and it fell upon the house and the house fell and great was the fall of it. There we are. We mustn't be like that foolish man. We must be unto the, unto, like, like unto the wise man who built his, that built his house on the rock and the wind came and the rain and it blew upon the house and the house fell not because it was founded upon a rock. Very wise words. Very wise words from the good book. And uh, what is this rock? Well, of course, uh, Jesus Christ was referring to the rock of religious faith. Now, we have no need and no interest in any such thing as religious faith. We are materialists, and therefore, I take it that we are also atheists. But there we are. That's just, that's just an aside. Yes, our rock is not religious. Our rock, the rock upon which we must build our house, the only firm foundation for it is precisely Marxist theory. The solid rock of revolution, you see, that is the, the, the basic lesson, actually, of all of Lenin's work and all of Trotsky's lesson, uh, all of Trotsky's life also. Now, the main thing is this. These marvelous ideas are beginning now to circulate widely. Why did they get? They're of interest because there is a new generation. Because, first of all, the period is such. Comrades, we, have, we must understand this. We have now entered, it's not a perspective, I'm talking, not, not tomorrow or the day after tomorrow, I'm talking about now. The world has now entered into the most turbulent, stormy period in the entire history of humankind. I said that some years ago, and I think a Swedish comment objected. He said, well, what, what about, you can't say that. I said, can't, I just did say it. If you can't say that. I said, well, well what about... Um, the fall of the Roman Empire. Now, the fall of the Roman Empire was, was a pretty stormy and turbulent period, I must admit. But that only affected a small part of the terrestrial globe. This affects the entire surface of the world. All countries are drawn into this. And it is, yes, a far more profound crisis than at any time before. And this now begins to enter people's consciousness. Human consciousness, we know, is very uh, conservative. It always was conservative since the day we lived in caves and dressed in skins. You know, people are, uh, people are afraid of change. Change, change is dangerous and so on. That's why people, workers don't automatically accept. Some of our companies don't understand this. They will not automatically gladly accept our, what we are saying, that you need a, a revolution. They, 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 they think, well, that's perhaps a bit too advanced, or perhaps you're going too far, perhaps you're asking for too much and so on. It takes time for the seriousness of the crisis to penetrate the consciousness of the masses. But that is already occurring. There are many symptoms of this. There's no two ways about it. And it's shown in a number of things. I think Rob mentioned the, uh, the polls, which have, I've got the figures here somewhere, but I don't know if I've got time to read them. Poll after poll shows that there's a layer, particularly of young people, that now consider themselves not to be left, so that, the word left actually begins to smell bad. You know, Goebbels, no, it's Goering, the German, the Nazi leader, Goering. He said, when I hear the word culture, I reach for my revolver, he said. When I hear the word left, I don't have a revolver, but I'm sorely tempted to reach for it if I had. You know, there is no left. What left? Don't talk nonsense. What left? 
There is no left. None at all. There's a, va- there's a huge vacuum now. There's never been a time, I think, in history, when the leaders of the labor movement have been so, have capitulated to, to such an open, blatant degree to the pressures of capitalism. That also goes for the, for the so-called lefts. The right capitulates to the bourgeois, like Starmer. He's open, blatantly a, a bourgeois, more than Blair even, an open bourgeois, and so on. And then the lefts, the cowardly, vacillating lefts, because they are not Marxist, because they don't understand the need for a revolution, because in effect they agree with the right wing that you cannot overthrow capitalism. It must be done within the framework of capitalism. Once you accept that premise, you are lost. You're absolutely lost. There's no hope for you. They all have that. And therefore, they cling to the right wing. The right wing clings to the bourgeois. The bourgeois clings to the extreme reactionaries. And the left, the so-called left, cling to the right wing. And therefore, they play a pernicious role, as you saw with Corbyn. You know, I mean, he must be, no doubt he's a, I don't know Jeremy myself. I've met him a couple of times. I think he's a nice chap. Doesn't swear, doesn't drink, doesn't smoke. I think he's a vegetarian. Doesn't kick the cat. Helps old ladies across the road. But politically speaking, he understands absolutely nothing. And that was shown to disastrous effect in what occurred in the Labour Party. Therefore, the, the, now people, people, look, young people, people have passed through the experience, both of reformism, and by the way, the, the, the essential thing you have must grasp, the crisis of capitalism is also the crisis of reformism, full stop, end of. People in the old days, people would understand reformism, it gives the national health and other reforms, which were significant after the war. Sure. Reformism with reforms, people understand that. But reformism without reforms, reform, reformism without reform. And that, what is Starmer offering now? Eh? What's he offering? Well, he's a man of his word. You see, he's not offering anything. And when he comes to power, that's exactly what he will do. See, he's an honest man. He's doing what he said. Who understands that? What possible power of attraction has this got? None. It isn't to say people won't vote for Labour in the election, because many of them will, of course, reacting against the Conservatives. But the, the whole school, and also the left reforms, Bernie Sanders in the States, he sold out, supported the Democrats. Joe Biden's the lesser evil. The lesser evil. You think so? I don't think so. What, what lesser evil does this horrible little monster represent? I would say no more about that subject. They've passed like in Greece with Cyprus and so on. People, and therefore, people have drawn the following conclusion. Oh, no, no, I don't want to bother with socialists anymore. I'm not a socialist. And uh, I'm not interested in that. I'm a communist. Even though they don't know what communism is. Even though they never read any, a, a word of Marx or Lenin. But they regard themselves as a communist. Now, this is the starting point. Our starting point, which you have to build, build upon. And therefore, that's where Lenin comes in. The ideas of Lenin to this generation now appear to be marvelous ideas, which they are, which give, give a concrete expression, a practical, realistic expression to what they feel in their hearts and souls. That's the purpose of it. And that's, that's the great advantage of this, uh, of this thing. Now, you see, I said that uh, reform is, uh, the crisis of capitalism is the crisis of reformism. 
Reformism is bankrupt. And of course, we must engage in a struggle against reformism, of course. The main enemy is imperialism and capitalism, then right reformism, and also left reformism. Yes, but be careful. Does that mean to say that we are opposed to reforms? That's what we're accused of. Oh, you don't want that. You're not interested in reforms. You're only interested in revolution. This is false. That's false. The struggle against our criticism, let's be clear about this, our criticism of the reformists is not that they fight for reforms. They don't fight for anything. They accommodate themselves to the ruling class and the bosses. They run away from a fight. They don't fight for higher wages. They don't organize. They don't organize strikes. And if there is a strike from the, with the pressure of the rank and file, then they, as quick as they can, they do sign some kind of a, a botch deal in order to put an end to it. That's their role. You see? On the contrary, we communists, let's be clear about this, we will fight for every genuine reform, for every wage increase, for everything which will better the standard of living of the workers. Because I'll tell you for why. The reason is this. Not just the fact, the fact that we, we, we must fight for the, the interests of the working class. There's another more important reason. Be clear about this. Without the day-to-day -day struggle for advance under capitalism, comrades, the socialist revolution is utopian. Will never take place. It's precisely through this struggle for better conditions under capitalism that the workers acquire a knowledge of their strength, acquire the need for organization, even on the most elementary level of the trade unions. And of course, the struggle for, for, for fight, fighting within the trade unions to purge them of, of, of the reformist bureaucracy, this is this, this uh, crap that's on, on, the, on the top. That's a very important part of our task. You see, look, and there's a danger here too. Some young, enthusiastic young kids, they run around with slogans, which sound very nice. Is it uh, one solution, revolution, things like that? It sounds nice. Let me tell you something. If the task of communists could reduce to the simply bombarding the working class with revolutionary slogans, it'd be a very, a very easy task indeed. It is not. Our task is not an easy task. Even if we build up to an organization of 10,000 or, or more, we're talking about the millions organized in the labor movement in Britain. And Lenin put forward the idea, the first task of the Bolsheviks is not to conquer power. You read his writings in 1970, they're marvelous. Writings on tactics and so on. Our task is not to conquer power. It's to conquer the working class. That's the first task. Unless and until we're able to do that, you're not past first base, really. And therefore, we, we brought to the question of, of tactics and strategy, where there's a wealth of material in Lenin, which is extremely important. Now, you see, Rob mentioned the communist parties. Well, I say here again, I said, what left? I say, what communist parties? What sort of communist parties are these? Good heavens, the old Stalinist parties, at least, at least they were a caricature, but a caricature has got some semblance of resemblance to the original thing. These creatures are not even on that level. They've completely abandoned even the most elementary propositions of Marxism and Leninism. They have no right whatsoever to the title of communist. And a, a large part of our struggle will be, as from now, a, a ferocious, determined ideological struggle against these revisionist bastards that have, that have, that have uh, usurped the name of communists. 
They wrongly describe themselves as a communist. They're not nothing of the sort. Read the Morning Star, read anything you like. Read the British Road for Socialism. They're reformists of the worst sort. Therefore, we can be friendly. I wouldn't say, adopt a belligerent tone. You know, don't insult people. But nevertheless, we must certainly, we must. Uh, by the way, the Communist Party is in crisis. You probably don't know this. There's the beginnings of crisis in a number of countries that we're in, co in contact with them, by the way, even at a leading level. For example, in Brazil, I've been in contact myself with the general secretary, as he was then, of the Brazilian Communist Party. He's very interested in our ideas. And so Venezuela, Venezuela the same. Well, we have very friendly relations with them. And so we must, we must develop this consciously in the pages of sources, not sources, not big about the communist, the communist. He's no longer there. He's been deposed as editor of sources appeal. About time, about time. But he's now been made the editor of the communist, which is, which is promotion, I suppose. He's been, he's been kicked upstairs, you see. It's good, but the communists should be directed towards the communist party. Go after them. Even in Britain, although they're not a big force, go after them. You know, friend, friendly, comedy, communism, but firm. But ultimately, we must pose the question. The question is not, not that we must pose it. The question we thought, we've, listen, communists, we've, we've, we've thought long and hard about this. We don't, take, we don't take irresponsible decisions. That would be wrong. We thought long and hard about this. And the conclusion that we've come to, not just for Britain, but a number of other countries also, is that the time is ripe. The conditions, the objective conditions demand it. All these young people that are looking for the banner of communism, we must provide them with the necessary point of reference. We must become that point of reference, which, which will answer to their needs. Because how can you be a communist and accept this if you don't have an organization? A communist organization is what's required. A communist party, a genuine communist party is required. Beware of imitations. You could put that on the masthead, Rob. Beware of imitations. That's the thing. Now, I'm aware of the fact that some people, perhaps even in this room, was, I'm going to say, I'm going to say, isn't that a bit sectarian? The answer is no. There is not an atom of sectarianism in our methods, in our approach, because we base ourselves precisely on what Lenin wrote. Lenin's advice, for example, which you should read to the early communists, is marvelous work, the finest work that's ever been done on revolutionary tactics, which is left-wing communism and infantile disorder, written, I think, in 1920, as advice also to the British Communist Party. He was in favor of setting up a small communist party in Britain. They had a few thousand members. I don't know how many thousands they have. Two thousand, that's all. We are, well, we are almost on the point of reaching that ourselves. But you see, what advice did he give them? He didn't just say, set up a communist party, demand Soviets. He didn't say that. He took into consideration the concrete level of consciousness of the, Brit the mass of British workers at that time. We were following the reformists, the Labour Party. And his advice was, yeah, set up a communist party, put forward communist ideas, yeah, but face towards the reformist workers, the mass, who not get with us, as he did in the Soviets prior to the revolution of October. Face. He said, conduct work, systematic work in the trade unions, the reformist trade unions, even the most right-wing unions, he said. He said the Bolsheviks even worked in police unions. It's not entirely accurate, I think, but nevertheless, I know, I know what he was talking about. 
Bolshevik, the Bolsheviks, in other words, worked in the most reactionary unions, anything, anywhere where you could get in contact with active workers. That's what we have to do. We have to take into consideration the, the level of consciousness, explain our ideas, not in an hysterical way, not in a stupid way, not in an ultimatist way, but uh, as friends and comrades and, and members of the, the working class. And uh, that, that's, that's, our, that's our task. As for our friends, the sects, who <laughs> really are sectarians, well, as I say, leave them alone. Leave them alone. Let them alone to play their fun and games. And as they disappear over the horizon, we will bid them bon voyage, and uh, we hope we never see you again. We are building seriously, unlike these fools, these idiots. We're not building, we're not sectarians in the country. Our party must be, not precisely, oriented towards the working class with the correct ideas. That was Lenin's policy. And as long as we follow Lenin's policy, you know, you won't go far wrong. You will not. That is the real relevance. It is, it is an extreme relevance of Lenin's ideas, not just in a general sense, but in a very practical sense. You want to you wanna know how to conduct work in Britain? Read left-wing communism with infantile disorder. Read what is to be done, a marvelous work. Read where to begin as we're beginning this uh, kind of work. Because this new period will put a lot of demands on us. A lot of demands. And I will finish on this uh, note. Lenin once said, every communist should be a professional revolutionary. He said that. He repeated it many times. Anyone who wishes, who aspires to be a communist must be a professional revolutionary. What does that mean? It doesn't necessarily mean to say that you're working full time for a revolutionary organization, that you're drawing wages. No, it doesn't mean. Very, many of the, of the full timers in the Bolshevik party, they, they couldn't be paid. The party didn't have any money. They worked as bank clerks and things. They, they, they found it easy to get a job, by the way, because they were very reliable employees. You know, they never went on strike or anything like that. <laughs> very reliable. No, a when he said you've got to be a professional revolutionary, it doesn't mean that you have to draw a weekly wage from the party. That doesn't what this. It means something infinitely more profound and important than that. It means from the moment you join this party that you are dedicated personally, personally, dedicated, heart and soul, body and soul, to the the the, the aim the fundamental, the glorious aim of communism, the fight for communism. That's what it means. It means all your waking hours, you're going to be at the disposal of the organization, conducting systematic work, building the party, winning contacts, raising money, selling papers in a way that you, you didn't do before. I'm sure all of you did this to one, to one degree or another. You did it, yes. But this is a different ballgame now. We must be aware of the colossal opportunities that exist for us. This period, communism, is made for us. It's wide open. The question is not we've got to look and see if we can win. No, 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 no. Listen, there are thousands, tens of thousands. I say hundreds. I'm not a person prone to exaggerate, by the way. Hundreds of thousands of young people in Britain that are looking for this organization. They're looking for us. You don't have to look for them. They're looking for us. What we have to do is to find them, to establish contacts with them. How? 
Whatever, whatever way you please, we don't care. We can be flexible, as Lenin said, as, as Ram said about Lenin. Be flexible, be imaginative, be creative. Think of new, new means, new methods. Any way of contacting the most advanced workers. We're not interested in winning, winning the masses, by the way. You can't win the masses at this stage. It's beyond our capabilities. What we're aiming for is to win the most, the minority of a minority of a minority, the most advanced workers and youth who are already open. They're already convinced. You don't have to convince them. They're already convinced. You have to go out there, meet them, and win them. And once they're in, of course, you educate them thoroughly in the ideas and principles and theories of Marxism. Crummy, that's our task. That's our task. And believe me, there is no more important task in your lives than that. It is the most important task of all the tasks, the tremendous task, the historic task, the heroic task, the struggle for the emancipation of the working class, of our class, in Britain, in Europe, and internationally. That's our task, and I'm sure with our collective efforts, we will meet our targets and we will achieve our ends. Comrades, long live Lenin, long live communism, workers of the world unite. Okay. Uh, well, comrades, Lenin famously said that he who has the youth has the future. And we're meeting here in London today. Uh, so what is the outlook of the youth in Britain today? There's a whole generation of young people who are going to be voting for the first time this year. They're going to be awake to politics. And what are they going to be approaching that election or or their, their political ideas? What is the content of those uh, for this, this newest generation? Well, if you're an 18-year-old in Britain today, you were two at the time of the 2008 crash. Ever since you were four, there have been Tories in power. This is the kind of world that you've grown up in. It's a world that, uh, that has seen year on year public services crumbling and, and life getting worse, living conditions deteriorating. Actually, the kids' word of the year this year was climate change. Well, 2023, the word of the year was climate change. They've just lived through the hottest year on record. The number two word of the year was war. So they've lived through the, the Ukraine war and the, the genocide being carried out in Palestine. This is what is at the forefront of the consciousness of this young generation. They're in a situation as well where the rich have never been rich. It was in the news, you probably saw uh, in the news the other, the other day, last week, I think it was, that the five, five richest, richest people, people in the world, in the world have doubled, doubled their wealth, their wealth since 2020. 2020. Billions, billions and billions, billions they've raked in, whilst life has gotten a lot worse for everybody else in that time. These 18-year-olds today, they were what, 14 when the pandemic started, uh, and this would have shaped their consciousness enormously. And then this year they will have the. This year they'll have the chance to vote, and they'll have a, this off. And they'll have a choice between uh, Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer. What a terrible, what an atrocious choice for these kids, for whom there must be an enormous degree of anger, a certain bleakness. I mean, if you're looking at the future 
when this is all you've known since you were four years old, just Tory governments, austerity, deteriorating living conditions, climate change, war. What a bleak prospect that is. What reference point do you have politically, industrially, even on the, you know, in the workplaces, for example, if you're going into work? Even culturally, there is no reference point in the media anywhere of anybody standing up against all of this, these atrocities that have been committed systematically throughout, your, throughout your, your life as you've been growing up. And even in the recent past, there is no reference point. For these 18-year-olds, Jeremy Corbyn resigned as leader of the Labour Party when they were 13 years old. He's ancient history. And even if he wasn't ancient history, what did he actually achieve? As Alan was explaining, these reformists actually delivered nothing. They promised things, but delivered nothing. So where is the reference point for these young people? As they, as they wake up to politics. For, for these people, for all of us, the capitalist system today, the imperialists, the capitalist system, it stands fully exposed as being completely unable to take society forwards from where we are today, to solve any of the problems facing ordinary people. And as the capitalists are exposed, so also are the Keir Starmers, the right reformists who deliberately and explicitly offer nothing different, and the left reformists, the Corbyns who are able to deliver nothing, also stand exposed. What would Lenin do in a situation like this? Well, Lenin did face a situation, in fact, mar far more severe than this with the outbreak of the First World War. The, the imperialists, the capitalists going to war, forcing workers into, to kill each other in the, in the trenches and the battlefields. And, and the social democrats, the reformists, the so-called Marxists all lining up behind their bourgeois, their respective bourgeois and their respective countries. An atrocious betrayal, a completely bleak picture and what did Lenin do in those, in those circumstances? He broke with them completely and totally and unequivocally and ruthlessly. As, as Rob said, he, ex he threw off that dirty shirt of, of socialism, of social democracy, and exchanged it for the clean banner, the clean shirt of communism. And even with a very small number, those were the ideas that he based himself on. Clearly and explicitly, we stand for, for communism, he said. And he, and he led the Russian Revolution, the Bolsheviks led the Russian Revolution with those ideas and founded the Communist International. And this Lenin year, this year that we've been planning for some time to celebrate, to commemorate the ideas, the legacy of Lenin, it, it does coincide, happily it coincides with a political need now for us in Britain and in, in many countries around the world to follow in the footsteps of Lenin. And that is why we are founding, as you know, we're founding the Revolutionary Communist Party in May of this year as the British section of the international Marxist tendency. Now, there is a lot of mistrust, disgust with political parties and with politicians in Britain and in other countries at the moment. And that is a very healthy thing, as there should be. You would fully expect that, given the state of, of the establishment politics today. We, of course, are not founding a political party like anything that already exists, whether that's in the establishment or on the far left or anything else, the so-called left. This is a party of a new type. Our aim is not to thrash about in the gutter with these opportunists and careerists uh, and the bourgeois professional uh, politicians. Our aim, our party's aim is something totally different. It's the complete liberation of anyone who slaves away to make money for their bosses at the cost of their health, at the cost of their happiness, at the cost of, of being able to live a full life. Our aim is not half measures, our aim is socialist revolution. That is the, the banner of the Revolutionary Communist Party. 
And so the next few months are going to see us here in Britain preparing for the founding Congress of that party in May. And we need to, above all, assemble the forces with which we want to launch that party. We start with 1,100 members, 1,100 comrades in Britain ready to found that party. We have three months and we can find hundreds more people who are interested in these ideas that we have to offer. This total break with everything that has come before, these clear communist politics. And we can also find the financial forces. There are hundreds of people who would join us. There are thousands of people who will be able to donate to us and donate to the founding of this kind of political party. We are not, obviously, the Tories or the Labour Party with huge financial operations, big donors. We rely on the, on the pennies and the pounds of the working class, of young people who want to see uh, a break with, with all, the, all the politics that exists at the moment. And next week, this week coming, in fact, within a week's time, I think it's three or four days away, we're launching what will be our most powerful weapon in the founding of the Revolutionary Communist Party, which is the communist newspaper. Now, Lenin understood the power of a revolutionary paper, and that's exactly what this is. Like the party, there is nothing else like the communist is going to be. No other part. There, there will be, as Alan says, there will be imitations. Be a, there are attempts that exist to be something like what we are going to achieve with this paper. But there is nothing like this paper. To change the world, it is necessary to understand it. Lenin explained that. Without revolutionary theory, he said, that there can be no revolutionary movement. And the center, literally the center of the paper, the centerpiece of the communist paper, is going to be every single issue Marxist theory. Theory, history, uh, uh, proper analysis, the tools we need to understand what is going on in the world around us. And that will broaden the minds of our party members and of the people who we can uh, sell the paper to. And it will raise the horizons for young people and workers and so on. People for whom political theory actually is not always accessible and is deliberately made inaccessible through the universities, for example. The job of the communist is to make that political theory accessible to workers and to, to, to educate ourselves, our party members and the people around us to raise our, our sights and our understanding. The paper will contain international news of revolutionary movements, of developments around the world, the antidote to all the rubbish we get out of the BBC about the, the plans, the policies of the British imperialists, of the US imperialists. The international pages of the communists will tell the truth about what's going on around the world. The Marxist point of view, the communist point of view, and what communists can do in, in Britain, for example, to influence, to have some kind of impact on, on what's going on around the world. And there will be reports in the communists of what is going on in the working class, in the lives of the working class around the country, in the workplaces, in the schools. What is your boss up to? that he shouldn't be doing? What's your landlord doing that he shouldn't be doing? We will carry these reports, interviews in the paper. What is it really like? What is life really like for millions of working class people in Britain today? Not just on the questions of wages and housing, although those will be covered, but also on questions of culture. What are we reading? What are we watching? What are people talking about on the streets, at the bus stops? All of this will be carried in the pages of the communists. There is nothing else like this in Britain at the moment. And we will take this paper starting next week, we will take this paper and we will use it everywhere we can. That's on, on the streets, outside tube stations, outside train stations. 
on demonstrations. There will still be Palestine demonstrations going on all over the country, and this paper will carry material on those questions. We'll use it in schools, in universities. There is a staff, obviously, who put the paper together, a full-time editorial board. But in reality, the, the 1,100 1, mem party members that we have around the country, and actually even far beyond that, the thousands of working class people and young people who will buy this paper, who will read this paper, that is the real editorial staff of this newspaper. We need to correspond with the, with the people that we are coming into, into, into contact with. Correspond not in a kind of uh, petty bourgeois way, uh, but in a, in a real unvarnished discussion between the communists and the broader layers of the working class that we can reach. That is the point of this paper. We need to sell that paper, we need to give it influence, and you will see, and hopefully everyone in this room will participate, next weekend you will see in every town and city all over the country, anywhere that we have a presence, and places that we don't currently have a presence, we can find people who will take a bundle of those papers and try and sell them in their workplaces or their schools. And, and you will, we will all participate in that to make a big splash with the communist for issue one, and obviously things will, will develop from there as the paper begins to have an impact. This is going to be our weapon to build the Revolutionary Communist Party. This will be the way also that we raise the money, that we find people who, want to, who agree with our ideas and want to join us. This will be the way that we face outwards, that we begin, even with our small numbers, we mustn't get ahead of ourselves, we are still a small party, a small organisation, but even with our small numbers, we begin to start to try to have an influence on some of the events, the class struggle that is taking place all over the country and is going to pick up in the next period. As I said, Lenin understood the importance of the paper in this way as a tool for us and we are following in his footsteps in that regard. So we have this book which we're launching here today and we will be holding Lenin schools for example all over the country in the next period. We'll be holding reading groups, there will be meetings all over the country, join the Leninists or explaining Lenin's ideas on different chapters of the book, different ideas uh, that, that Lenin had. There will be centre pages in the newspaper. There is our theoretical magazine. This year we will be studying Lenin uh, to, to try and conquer his ideas. And everything we do should be widely publicised. And, and there is a hashtag across the whole international, there is a hashtag of Lenin Lives for this campaign, for everything that we're doing to promote these ideas. So we're going to study Lenin this year. And we're going to celebrate his ideas and his legacy. And we're going to commemorate that. Not, not as an icon for, for decorative purposes, but as an actual living guide to the work that we're trying to do today. In that sense, this year is all about, through the books, through the paper, through the magazine, we're building a monument to Lenin. But not in the form of a statue. It's in the form of a, a party, the Revolutionary Communist Party. And the bricks that will build that monument are the thousands of workers and young people who will join our party, who will donate money to it, who will contribute letters, interviews to the paper, and so on. And the cement for this monument is the Marxist theory, without which the whole lot would come crumbling down. The best school of Leninism that any of us can participate in is to do exactly what Alan was describing, what Lenin's life was all about. It was conquering Marxist ideas and using those ideas to build a revolutionary party, the revolutionary party, the revolutionary communist party, and building the IMT in whichever country 
we are in. So with that in mind, we can say forward to the communists next week and forward to the founding congress of the Revolutionary Communist Party in May. <laughs>